Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey. Let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. Tonight I say we must move forward, not backward, upward, not forward, and always twirling, twirling, twirling towards freedom. Those candidates are phonies. You heard me. They're alien replicants from beyond the moon. Yeah, all right, pal. Don't forget your stinking flag. America, take a good look at your beloved candidates. They're nothing but hideous space reptiles. It's true. We are aliens. But what are you going to do about it? It's a two-party system. You have to vote for one of us. He's right. This is a two-party system. Well, I believe I'll vote for a third-party candidate. Go ahead. Throw your vote away. (laughs) (laughs) All hail President K. They're all the same. I'll show you politics in America. Here it is, right here. I think the puppet on the right shares my beliefs. I think the puppet on the left is more to my liking. Hey, wait a minute. There's one guy holding up both puppets. Shut up. Go back to bed, America. Your government is in control. I have this feeling, man, because you know there's a handful of people actually run everything. That's true. It's provable. It's not a fuck. I'm not a conspiracy nut. It's provable handful, very small elite run and own these corporations, which include the mainstream media. I have this feeling who's ever elected president, like Clinton was, no matter what your promises you promise on the campaign trail, blah, 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 when you win, 
You go into this smoky room with the 12 industrialists, capitalist scumfs who got you in there, and you're in this smoky room, and this little uh, uh, film uh, screen comes down, and a big guy in a cigar, roll the film. And it's a shot of a Kennedy assassination from an angle you've never seen before. It looks suspiciously off uh, the grassy knoll. And then the film, the screen goes up and the lights come up and they go to the new president. Any questions? Uh, just what my agenda is. First we bomb Baghdad. You got it. So, as I talked about on the last show, the closer we get to the election, the crazier people are going to become. And you can see that happening on social media. I know you guys are watching it as well. And it's really, really difficult not to get involved and wrapped up in that kind of thing yourself. I know I have trouble with it, and I've been guilty of it in the past, and I may be guilty of it before election season is over. But it's very important to keep a level head, take a step back, instead of having these knee-jerk reactions, because remember, our opponents, whoever they may be, are counting on us to have knee-jerk reactions in order to use the way we handle the problems they create against us. This is a war strategy, and the war is on the people now. It's not on a foreign entity. The war is on the people, and they're turning us against each other, but things do not have to be that way, my friends. Remember, we have the two-party system for a reason, and that is because it makes it so much easier to pit citizen against citizen and keep us all divided and distracted and just angry all the time so we don't get caught up in actually looking at some of the deeper things that are happening and going on in the background that really mean more than a lot of what our parties are doing. Our parties always have a hand in it, one or the other, but there are forces behind politics that are more powerful and are more important than the left-right paradigm, the Democrat and Republican parties. And they have the power because they have the influence, they have the money, and they have the means to do things to get what they want done. And a lot of our representatives are basically stooges for these parties. And we talk about how they don't even read the big bills. We don't even know if they read any bills for that matter. And we talk about how they can be bribed or their family members can be bribed. It's perfectly legal. They can be dual citizens with other countries that allow them to be dual citizens. So everything that's coming at us 24-7, all the propaganda, all the psychological manipulation, the social conditioning is to keep us fighting our perceived enemies, which is either Democrat or Republican. And so if there are more important enemies behind the scenes, we would be better suited, of course, to find out how to fight them, to find out who they are first and foremost, and then concentrate our efforts into pushing back against them and bringing to light what they are doing. And I know you guys know this, but we really need to get this out to average citizens. And it's very hard because they are so brainwashed with this spirit of 
tribalism and the spirit of revenge and the spirit of us versus them. You know, it's it's a very hard job to get through to someone like that. And it's always the lesser of two evils. It's always look what that other side is doing. And a lot of people, most people, do not ever look into the psychological aspects of politics or what they may be allowing themselves to be pushed into by the actions of others. You look at Saul Alinsky. I keep telling conservatives and libertarians and anyone who's not hard left, read Saul Alinsky and learn these uh, manipulation tactics. And they're not far from the psychological warfare tactics that the U.S. intelligence and other agencies use on foreign enemies. In fact, they're pretty much the same exact tactics for when they go back and try and infiltrate these groups and try and stage coups in these foreign lands. Those things are happening in our country. They've always been happening in our country. And we never quite know who is legit out there in the public eye, who's legit online, who's really true blue to the cause that they are rallying for. We never know exactly if they could be a limited hangout, controlled opposition. You know, it's sad to say that, but you really need to watch these people like a hawk. And, you know, when they do say something that is a little shady or weird, they need to be called out on it. They need to be, somebody needs to say something to them or get through to the people that are listening to them that, hey, they're starting to go off the rails and they're not doing what they should be doing. And there are people that just want to stoke the fires. And there's a lot of nihilism in the public. There's a lot of aimlessness. There's a lot of people who don't believe in anything really. And instead of believing in something good, they go out and they try to do things that they're kind of nudge to do from the media or the personalities or the news that they follow. You've got like, you've got even Kamala Harris saying, continue the rioting, basically. That's very dangerous. We need to come together as a people. And it doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right. We're not going to be this shiny, happy people holding hands, per se. But if we can realize that a lot of what goes on with the left-right paradigm, the two-party system, is there to keep us distracted and divided, then we could go from there and perhaps start to have dialogue again, have healthy debating again, actually talk about ideas again. Because no society, no country, no government can get anywhere good unless they start to hash out their ideas talk about things because when you're quiet when you refuse to talk when you refuse to have a debate or even hear the other side at all then the next step is violence and a lot of people know that and the public is being pushed into being at each other's throats in a new civil war which we do not need we do not want most of us good people do not want that there's no reason for it we want to come together and try and fix the problems or start to fix the problems that are going on in our country, if, indeed, it's not too late. I'm reminded of Marshall McLuhan, 
who was famous for his book from the 60s called The Medium is the Massage, or as many like to call it, The Medium is the Message. The guy was brilliant. He said several decades ago, World War III is a guerrilla information war with no division between military and civilian participation. He was able to nail the future so accurately that it was disturbing. And he didn't appear to be one of those insider elite progressives like Bertrand Russell and uh, the Huxleys. And the guy was just absolutely fantastic on some of the things he said. He said in The Medium is the Massage, all media work us over completely. They are so pervasive in their personal, political, economic, aesthetic, psychological, moral, ethical, and social consequences that they leave no part of us untouched, unaffected, or unaltered. The medium is the message. Any understanding of social and cultural change is impossible without a knowledge of the way the media work as environments. All media are extensions of some human faculty, psychic or physical. He also said, All media exist to invest our lives with artificial perceptions and arbitrary values, which can hardly be denied after everything that we've seen. He had another great quote that said, Only the small secrets need to be kept protected. The large ones are kept secret by public incredulity. He also said, when it comes to politics, politics will eventually be replaced by imagery. The politician will be only too happy to abdicate in favor of his image because the image will be so much more powerful than he could ever be. Now that goes back to the things I say about how we kind of build up these politicians and these parties as a fairy tale in our heads to be what they want us to be even long after it's been proven that their policies were against many of the things that we wanted them to implement. But still, we can't, look, you know, we can't let go of that fantasy, that dream, because it gives us something to believe in, I suppose. And that goes also back to the two-party system. People don't want to give up that dream because if they actually went back and said, oh, you know, that politician, I really supported him, and he let me down, he was a piece of crap, you know, if we told the truth, then that would be letting the other side, the adversary, get one over on us. Yet, by not holding these people accountable and telling the truth, we just continue to let our factions become more and more corrupt and rotten. Another great McLuhan quote, Once we have surrendered our senses and nervous systems to the private manipulation of those who would try to benefit from taking a lease on our eyes, ears, and nerves, we don't really have any rights left. Leasing our eyes, ears, and nerves to commercial interests is like handing over the common speech to a private corporation or like giving the Earth's atmosphere to a company as a monopoly. Don't need a formal conspiracy right. when interests converge. These people went to the same universities oh, and fraternities. They're on it's the same boards of directors. They're in the same country clubs. They have like interests. They yes. don't need to call a meeting. They know what's good for them. It's a and they're getting it. And there, there used to be seven oil companies. There are now three. It will soon oh. be two. The things that matter in this country have been reduced in choice. There are two political parties. There are a handful of insurance companies. There are about six or seven in- information things. But if you 
you want a bagel or 23 flavors because you have the illusion. You have the illusion of choice. Right. You don't get the real important choice. There's no freedom of choice. That's a great point. Hyperdevelopment. The Americans seem to think that the party's going to last forever and the holiday goes on and on. And they don't really see the error of certain things. I mean, uh, Thomas Rainsford Lounsbury was an educator in the 19th century and he said, It never ceases to surprise me at the infinite capacity of the human mind to resist the introduction of useful knowledge. And that's what it is. People know better. People sense better, but they go against it. They just think it's, they, they they think just there are no like, consequences. It, it kills me that people, you know, build up, you know, you go, you yeah, go to Hollywood and you see these. It's a steady downhill slide. Uh, you know, we're headed, this country is really finished. I mean, it really is technically finished. It's just a matter of playing out the end game. I call it... The, <laughs> well, the, the, that's a, happy. The, well, that's true. It's true. You can see it. You can smell it. Anyone who can't see it or smell it doesn't understand. Yeah. Uh, there's a medical term that they use in hospitals when a person has no future left on this planet. They can't be helped anymore. Uh, and they put it on the chart. CTD. Circling the drained. And that's what we're doing. We're slowly circling the drain. And, and, and the circles get smaller and they get faster. I enjoy it. Personally, I, I don't have a stake in the outcome. Right. I personally enjoy this, this circus that I've been invited to. I, I, I've often said when you're born in the world, you're given a ticket to the freak show. When you're born in America, you're given a front row seat. And I couldn't enjoy it more so i don't want to harp on anything that i've talked about previously in the past i know i repeat myself a lot and i know that probably gets on people's nerves but i've always got new listeners and i just feel like that i need to get through some of these very important principles and these important statements that are kind of universal but you know talking about the parties well here in the states we have two permitted allowable parties Two sponsored parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, the left and the right, the liberals, or I say progressives, and the conservatives. And that is our world, and that is most people's worldview when it comes to politics. So you only have two choices. Sure, we have some third parties or some smaller parties, like the Libertarians, the Constitutional Party, or Constitution Party rather, and the Green Party, and there are others, but they have no chance of making it because they don't have nearly enough financial backing, but also they have no chance to even debate because the debate committee is owned and run by Republicans and Democrats, and they won't let a third party debate. And also, we see how it is even when someone from their own parties who has some different issues or some different stances stands up and tries to run we see what happens with what the the republicans did to ron paul and what the democrats did twice to bernie sanders so there's really no chance of getting an independent voice or independent candidate in there and i've also mentioned in the past that the two-party system is dualistic you know one party sees theirs as white and the other is black light and dark, good versus evil, yin and yang. But the two parties really have a symbiotic relationship because they work off of each other to control one another's bases. Uh, You couldn't have one without the other, basically. 
And so you only have one choice because you're never going to support the enemy, right? So one choice is no choice. And that's how you get such low approval rates continuously with Congress and the Senate. Because people will continue to vote their guys in just because they have a D or R beside their names. Even though they may be crappy, inferior candidates. If people even look into them that far. And so you have these career politicians, these lifers like John McCain and, of course, Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden, for one, uh, Strom Thurmond and all these people that just seem to hang on forever and even die in office. So there's really not much of a choice, but people don't realize that they, you know, I remember people got behind McCain and the conservative side. Even though it was widely known that McCain was not a conservative, yet we were eventually led to go for him, support him, defend him, because he was the guy. And so, you know, the same thing happened with Romney. I mean, Romney was not a conservative. He had been a Democrat. He had had liberal stances on things or progressive stances on things. And people were a little bit skeptical, but they eventually just got behind him and and pushed Romney. And so people will turn their backs on their principles to fit their candidates. And that's one of the big problems with the downfall of the two parties, um, especially with the conservatives. They have continuously put their principles aside, their stances aside, their long-held beliefs aside to support candidates who didn't really fit the bill, who didn't share those beliefs with them. And so we're where we are today. And it's a whole new world now with the MAGA movement because conservatism has changed a lot just under the MAGA movement. And of course, the Democrats have went more social, more communist, really. I don't know. There's not really a lot of room for them to go farther left And the right can't go too much farther right. But the more they change, the more they stay the same. So now you have two parties that promote war, two parties that promote bigger government, more spending, which is more debt, two parties that are promoting, in a lot of ways, the welfare state. Uh, So what do they stand for? You know, we have an administration in office right now that hasn't really been great on the Second Amendment, which is a big deal because we know the other side really, really wants to destroy the Second Amendment. They want to abolish it, or many do on that side. And that's just a well-known thing. Ask Diane Feinstein. So there's a lot of problems going on, but there is a lot of psychology involved in just having the two parties. It's so easy to pit the people against each other when there's no other viable choice. You know, choices, we say, us that talk about real free markets and real unfettered capitalism as far as no protectionism, no, you know, no cronyism, we talk about choices. It's much better to have choices, different choices, 
for different products from different companies. And the competition is really good because it forces those companies to compete with one another to make better products. And therefore, the customer ends up having better choices. But we don't have that with politics. We have these, you know, we didn't really even have another candidate to run against Trump in the on the Republican side. And of course, you saw that sideshow circus with the DNC candidates. Just ridiculous. It was all a big uh, Council on Foreign Relations Rhodes Scholarship kind of fest. And, you know, of course, the guy with the most notoriety won. Even though this guy has been lying for years, he's a known plagiarist. He lied about his record uh, in uh, his uh, college record, and that was a big deal in the news. That ruined his first uh, attempt to run as president. But, you know, people just want to sweep that under the rug. Politicians, for the most part, the, the ones on top, are liars. They're used car salesmen. They tell the people what they want to hear, and it's not hard to figure that out. I mean, they have been doing that forever. That's what politicians do. Yet, people are willing to swallow their pride. Well, the left absolutely have swallowed their pride and uh, put their principles aside to support Biden and Harris. I mean, Biden wrote the Patriot Act, right? Talk about that a lot. He loves to talk about writing the Patriot Act. He helped write the crime bill that locked up so many minorities. Kamala Harris is this authoritarian cop who has a record of doing the same thing. I mean, you could go on and on about the negatives, but the left can never vote for Trump or even think about, in a big way, getting behind a third-party candidate. So they're going to push, and they are pushing this guy, who is he's very close to full-on senility. I mean, come on. The guy is in the throes of Alzheimer's or dementia. He's like forgetful Jones. And uh, it looks really bad, but of course, a vote for him is a vote for Kamala. And, you know, it's they continuously push the public against each other. And you notice that no one is really trying to bring the public together because that really doesn't help out the politicians. It doesn't help, help out the party and it doesn't help out the government overall. We need to be afraid. We need to be angry. We need to be distracted. We need to be dependent in some form on the government so we won't give the whole thing up and, and say, we're done, we're done putting up your crap, we're done paying taxes, we're done uh, acting like we're listening to you and listening to your rules. We've got to stay at each other's throats. We've got to still, enough of us still have to believe in the the system, the system of government, this democracy which is not a democracy, of course, it's a constitutional republic. And thank goodness it is, because it would have already hit the fan if it had been a democracy. Democracies fail and have failed numerous times, so many times throughout history, because the masses are easily swayed, the masses are easily moved, easily fooled, easily manipulated. And that just, you know, it's not... 
a slight on humanity exactly. It's just the way things are. We have something built inside us that causes us to have herd instinct. And this is just the way we're made. But the more savvy the citizen, the more he can push back, he or she can push back and see through the lies and the propaganda and the total BS and the manipulation tactics, the nudge theory tactics and all that kind of stuff. And they don't want that. They don't want us to, you know, follow the yellow brick road through the maze and open the curtain and see the little weasels in the Council on Foreign Relations pushing the buttons. They don't want us to know that. So they keep the people fighting and distracted. And they're really, really doing that this time around tenfold. And I don't know if they want a civil war or not. I kind of think they do. I kind of think the uh, financial powers that be want a civil war. See, when things are destroyed, when there's times of an emergency, you know, these, these times are when big policies get changed, big deals get changed. And we're seeing that under the Great Reset. The Great Reset is the catalyst for all these different globalist groups to change all these different policies. A lot of economic um, power is changing hands. If you listen to the last podcast, you know that BlackRock has taken over the Federal Reserve, and that's a lot different than Q saying that Trump has taken over the Federal Reserve. No, BlackRock, the most powerful investment firm in the world, has taken over the Federal Reserve. They control the money, so therefore they control the people. The Federal Reserve has been controlling the people for a long time, and most of the people still don't even know it. So we have to look into these techniques that they use on us to keep us divided and look at the cult of the presidency, the cult of having a leader, the cult of having a politician, and the psychological manipulation and the psychological warfare that is involved in controlling people. You know, I've talked in the past about Trump is very powerful, and it's not solely just because it's him. It's partly because of the time and place we are in the world, in our society, in time. But he has a base that adores him, and then an opposition that absolutely hates him. That gives him the power. It would give whoever was in power, if it wasn't him, the power to really control two sides because people become so feverishly uh, angry and worked up that they don't realize that they have knee-jerk reactions to whatever he says and does. So his side will go along with whatever he says, and then the other side will go against whatever he says, and that allows for a lot of manipulation. We get manipulated by our own parties, probably more so than the other side. It's the propaganda coming from our own parties a lot of times. It's much more dangerous than a propaganda, the propaganda coming from the other side, because we are skeptical of that propaganda. We are skeptical of that other side. We keep our eyes peeled on them. We're watching them like hawks, 
and we're waiting for them to slip up or do something that we disagree with. But our side, on the other hand, we kind of uh, turn a blind eye to, we kind of trust them and just automatically assume that they have our best interests in mind. But as you look back through history and you see all the policies and things that have changed from each presidential administration, I look at the Republicans and so many things that I do not like that was bad for freedom, that caused debt, that caused uh, less freedom here, the the policies that happened that were long-ranging that, that still affect us to this day, a lot of those things happened under Republican administrations. Uh, government has grown continuously under Republican administrations. We've gotten lots of new agencies under Republican administrations. And of course, we had 9-11 under a Republican administration, which changed everything, and it shouldn't have. Uh, we became less free because of the things that they did to us. And they said they hated us. Our enemies supposedly hated us for our freedom, so we had to become less free. Of course, they didn't say that part, but that's exactly what happened. It's been a downward spiral for individual liberty ever since. And neither of the two political parties that are in charge that have the say-so are good for freedom are good for individual liberty. And I think most people who can actually think for themselves, most free thinkers and people who can still critically assess things, fully understand that to be true. I want to read an excerpt from Gustave Le Bon's The Crowd, The Study of the Popular Mind. In the section called Electoral Crowds, he says, let us examine by what methods electoral crowds are to be persuaded. It will be easy to deduce their psychology from the methods that are most successful. It is of primary importance that the candidate should possess prestige. Personal prestige can only be replaced by that resulting from wealth. Talent and even genius are not elements of success of serious importance. Of capital importance, on the other hand, is the necessity for the candidate of possessing prestige, of being able to, that is, to force himself upon the electorate without discussion. The reason why the electors, of whom a majority are working men or peasants, so rarely choose a man from their own ranks to re represent them, is that such a person enjoys no prestige among them. When, by chance, they do elect a man who is their equal, it is as a rule for subsidiary reasons, for instance, to spite an eminent man or an influential employer of labor on whom the elector is in daily dependence, and whose master he has the illusion he becomes in this way for a moment. The possession of prestige does not suffice. However, to assure the success of a candidate, the elector stickles in particular for the flattery of his greed and vanity. He must be overwhelmed with the most extravagant blandishments, and there must be no hesitation in making him the most fantastic promises. If he is a working man, it is impossible to go too far in insulting and stigmatizing employers of labor. As for the rival candidate, an effort must be made to destroy his chance by establishing by dint of affirmation, repetition, and contagion has announced that he is about to heckle the candidate by putting him one of those embarrassing questions which are always the joy of the audience. 
The satisfaction, however, of the opposition party is short-lived, for the voice of the questioner is soon drowned in the uproar made by his adversaries. Now keep in mind, this book is very old, but a lot of things haven't changed and the way people act towards politicians and the way people behave in crowds, of course, hasn't changed. I won't read too much more, but he talks about parliamentary assemblies. He says in parliamentary assemblies, we have an example of heterogeneous crowds that are not anonymous. Although the mode of election of their members varies from epoch to epoch and from nation to nation, they present very similar characteristics. In this case, the influence of the race makes itself felt to weaken or exaggerate the characteristics common to crowds, but not to prevent their manifestation. The parliamentary assemblies of the most widely differentiated countries of Greece, Italy, Portugal, Spain, France, and America present great analogies in their debates and votes and leave the respective governments face-to-face -face with identical difficulties. Moreover, the parliamentary system represents the idea of all modern civilized peoples. The system is the expression of the idea, psychologically erroneous but generally admitted, that a large gathering of men is much more capable than a small number of coming to a wise and independent decision on a given subject. And I'll finish reading this here. The general characteristics of crowds are to be met with in parliamentary assemblies, intellectual simplicity, irritability, suggestibility, the exaggeration of sentiments, and the prepondering influence of a few leaders. In consequence, however, of their special composition, parliamentary crowds offer some distinctive features which we shall point out. Simplicity in their opinions is one of their most important characteristics. It is the case of all parties, and more especially so far as the Latin peoples are concerned. An invariable tendency is met within crowds of this kind to solve the most complicated social problems by the simplest abstract principles and general laws applicable to all cases. Naturally, the principles vary with the party, but owing to the mere fact that the individual members are part of a crowd, they are always inclined to exaggerate the worth of their principles and to push them to their extreme consequences. I talk about that a lot, right? In consequence, parliaments are more especially representative of extreme opinions. Now, this is interesting because we've been having all these riots and they talk about the Jacobins. The most perfect example of the ingenuous simplification of opinions peculiar to assemblies is offered by the Jacobins of the French Revolution. Dogmatic and logical to a man, and their brains full of vague generalities, they busied themselves with the application of fixed principles without concerning themselves with events. It has been said of them, with reason, that they went through the revolution without witnessing it. With the aid of the very simple dogmas that served them as a guide, they imagined they could recast society from top to bottom and cause a highly refined civilization to return to a very interior phase of the social evolution. The methods they resorted to to realize their dream were the same stamp of absolute ingenuousness. I thought that was worth reading. I hope you did too. Because, as I said before, nothing changes. We haven't evolved. We're still pushing these politicians, no matter how lame they are, no, how, no matter how imperfect they are, 
no matter how bad their records are. We ignore it all, and we continue to push them and all but worship them and defend them at all costs, not ever seeming to give a thought to how this hurts our own credibility and our own record. I ran across a pretty good article on the left-right paradigm from The Last Bastille on WordPress by a guy named Kyle Reardon. He's got a pretty good thing going here. Imagine, if you will, growing up with everyone in your family supporting a particular football team. Every game, your entire family watches their team perform a tackle, score a touchdown, or otherwise slow the opposition's advance on the field. Your relatives, even if they aren't excited about anything else, will jump up and shout with utter enthusiasm for the success of that team, regardless of a quality performance or even relevance to their own lives. Mainline politics is much the same way. There are Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives. It is always presented as a series of binary options. There is never a third way or even a glance into the vastness that is infinite possibility. This tiny box reality is anything but real, for the deliberate systematic narrowing of perception is about as heinous an act upon the liberty of human thought as can be conceived. This artificially dichotomous construct is known as the false left-right paradigm. Have you ever wondered why there is a hegemonic two-party system in America, or even a political party at all? A history lesson on the development of parties aside, a key reason that they exist in the first place is to actually support each other. The forces of popular resistance would be much more effective at toppling the power structure since those forces would be unified against a singular entity. However, the Democrats and Republicans prop each other up, much like an archway. This way, resistance to them is significantly diffused and even set against each other. You know, I talk a lot about how the left-right paradigm, the Democrats and Republicans have a symbiotic relationship, and that's what this article is pointing to. He says, Notice also that the left-right paradigm is not limited to political parties alone. It is also quite observable in political ideologies, or what passes for them. Watch any mainline conservative or liberal pundit, and you'll notice the same litany of talking points as if from a recipe. Typically, they tend to agree on the important issues, which are seldom, if ever, discussed publicly, yet disagree on the minor ones, which of course are mentioned front and center on the public stage. Notice the society of spectacle when it comes to the public education, campaign finance, gay marriage, and other things, but the obfuscation on foreign policy, war diplomacy, and international trade the deception concerning the domestic surveillance police state apparatus, and especially the stunning silence about the viability of central banking. It has been assumed that the left is composed of liberals and Democrats, whereas the right is composed of conservatives and Republicans. When you compare the more consistent ideological positions of, say, communism and socialism on the left, then fascism and national socialism on the right, their core premise is the idea that the individual must be subject to the group and sacrificed, if necessary, for the greater good. The government or the state is held as all-important. Common law rights are simply considered only civil liberties granted by the state and thus are not naturally inalienable. Upon objective scrutiny, the philosophical underpinnings of the left and right are in fact the same. 
The left-right paradigm is taken from the corporate world in the form of duopolies, i.e. Coke and Pepsi, AT&T, Verizon, etc. Customers, like voters, are given the illusion of choice, since a duopoly looks a lot better than a monopoly. Given that the voters are duped between the lesser of two evils, they are balkanized against each other alongside partisan lines which do not represent genuine differences either in terms of philosophy or policy. Voters are literally stuck within this grand political ploy since they are conditioned to believe that they have consented by voting to whatever the parties have done. And worst of all, voters do not realize that there is a larger power structure sitting on top of that partisan archway pulling the strings of the puppet parties. This cap on the archway is the conglomeration of special interests, some private, others corporate. So really, it is in fact all one unit that supports itself and is quite an effective apparatus for containing revolution. If the left-right paradigm, as I have explained, is a true and accurate concept, then why does the populace continue to acquiesce to it? You must remember that just as with corporate sports teams and overly priced universities, People have been conditioned to personally identify with one of the two political parties, usually through their family acting as a socialization agent towards an individual member, especially a child. And because of this, people typically grow up to become straight ticket voters supporting a party because their parents did. This can be observed with the 2008 presidential election when the Republicans opposed Barack Obama in just the same way liberals attacked John McCain, especially considering that each figurehead was essentially a daddy figure to their own helpless partisan followers. I'm almost done here. Breaking out of the left-right paradigm involves a paradigm shift about the nature of politics itself. For instance, political discourse a century ago was not based around conservatives and liberals, but about liberty and tyranny. It wasn't about social engineering schemes, but about how much state intervention was present in the lives of the population. The proper role of government was absolutely paramount to the security and prosperity of its citizens, for without it, democide, death by government, became the most dangerous threat to life, liberty, and property, as was evidenced by the death tolls and property destruction caused by various wars of the 20th century. Once you stop being psychologically dependent on the dominant political parties and their corporate media pundits, then the very beginning of your own personal renaissance can begin. And again, that was The Last Bastille by Kyle Reardon. It's called The Left-Right Paradigm. And I'll put that in my show notes. Again, there's something psychological about only having the two parties. It goes back to our tribal instincts from thousands of years ago. When we did live in tribes and we warred with the closest tribe, they were our sworn enemies. So only given two allowable choices that have any chance of being in national office for the most part, we will stay at each other's throats. And the media and our government keep us at each other's throats. Also with the office of president, it is the perfect division tool. It goes right along with the left-right paradigm having the only two choices. So the president is the great divider-in-chief. Now, this is not a slight on Trump. This is what a president does. It's what he is. You know, these guys don't really try to bring us together because they are 
the perfect divider. And they keep the public at each other's throats. They keep us distracted and divided. So we're paying attention to them. We're not paying attention to the shadow government, these policies going on behind the scenes, what's going on with the Fed and BlackRock, what's going on, you know, foreign policy wise, the war in Yemen. We're not talking about the millions and billions wasted. We're not talking about a lot of really important things like our amendments being at risk, like the Earn It Act, the end of encryption, or these draconian gun bills that the Democrats are coming up with. We're on a steady diet of divide and rule, divide and conquer, distraction, and the presidency offers a perfect distraction because, as I said before, he gets all the credit for the good and all the blame for the bad. One side hates him and the other side adores him. So the president, through psychological manipulation, can really control both parties. And whoever is controlling the president or influencing the president, therefore, can control both parties. It is the perfect, perfect scenario for controlling the masses. I also have another theory regarding the office of president. So us having that office, us having him as a whipping boy and a hero, takes the emphasis off our individual representatives. And I think that that's even another reason why we continue to elect these awful representatives, no matter how bad their rating, their approval ratings are, you know, we, we elect them time and time again. And of course, a lot of it is just good old fashioned, the lesser of two evils. We can't support the other guy and we shouldn't have to support the other guy. We should have viable third parties that we can go to, to vote for what we actually want to get done instead of these talking point points and these empty slogans. But no, we continue to blame the president for a lot of things. And I think that's another reason we keep voting these crooks in and nothing changes. And those guys, a lot of them, are just there to collect a paycheck, to get the benefits from that office, and to also network so they can move to higher echelons in the finance and government systems. But I don't know. I've just been thinking about that recently, and it seems to make a lot of sense to me. Now, keep in mind, all this talk about the psychological manipulation and the psychology of having a president in elections and whatnot is not to take emphasis off the crookedness, the corruption of corporate media. They are terrible for the most part, and to blame for so much of the division and the distraction that we have in our world. And remember, they are controlled by like five or six corporations and Disney, of course, being one of the main ones. So we have to remember that they are a huge part of this whole scheme. And sometimes you have to wonder if they are working for the state to keep the division going. You know, sometimes, sometimes they could be controlled opposition. Propaganda works best when 
It's your actual own party using it. So we have to be forever eternally vigilant, pay attention. We have to weigh the information we receive. We have to use critical thinking skills and not just jump to conclusions and have knee-jerk reactions because remember that the opposition, whoever it might be, the opposition to freedom, the opposition to small government, and that includes both parties, they depend on us having a certain quick reaction to things and then using that against us. That is one of their main tactics. So we have to remember that and keep that in mind when receiving new information. I know I've done a lot of reading on this episode. I want to take a piece from a book called The Age of Manipulation, The Con and Confidence, The Sin and Sincere by Wilson Brian Key. He says, in the first chapter, It Takes One to Know One, the heritage of the U.S. commercial mass communication media dates back at least to the Greek philosopher Protagoras. Protagoras was the most famous of the sophists known for his dictum, man in the measure of all things. Having pondered the relativity of human perceptions and judgments, Protagoras was eventually accused of heresy. His books were burned and he died in exile. Early Greek sophists were professional teachers of rhetoric. When considered in the words of Aristotle to be all the available means of persuasion. Sophist originally meant a clever or skilled person. Sophists were attacked by Plato and Aristotle for not seeking objective truths. The sophists' only concern, according to their critics, was victory in debate, a victory they were allegedly prepared to use dishonest means to achieve. In the interest of their clients, who paid high fees, Sophists supposedly attacked traditional values in Greek society. This was their fatal mistake. They are remembered today almost entirely through their critics who tell us that Sophists cared only for success in power, not truth. Sophists sought to understand the structure of human societies, relationships between words and things, between observers and their observations, and between reality and perceptions of reality. Protagoras was widely known for his ethical and moral preoccupations. Critics, however, claimed sophist doctrines were dishonest and blamed them for weakening Greek moral fiber. The sophists perceived no permanently enduring truth, no divinely sanctioned law, and no eternal transcendental code of values. The sophist movement disappeared in Greek philosophy by the 3rd century BC, but had a powerful effect upon succeeding centuries of philosophy science, and scholarship as an antithesis, something to oppose. Sophistry today is a term used for fallacious reasoning or argument. The communication industry operates on a sophistic basis that all things are relative, that credibility and sales are the criteria of effectiveness, that truth is an adaptable, malleable, even expendable commodity. Truth, as every media employee knows, can be created, ignored, adapted to any purpose, modified, or turned upside down. Truth becomes credibility and is validated in the eyes of the beholder instead of within a rigorous structure of confirmable facts. This relativistic perspective, however, must never be permitted to surface consciously within the audience. In the training of a professional communication technician, effort is made to sidestep personal conviction or commitment to a cause, 
perspective, idea, or even personal preference. Professional objectivity is offered as an idea that disposes, in fantasy at least, of human bias. Media technicians work for any product, brand, politician, or individual who can hire them. U.S. media executives operate in a milieu of sophistic relativism, constantly measuring work and cost-effectiveness against sales, votes, or attitude and opinion change. Truths are manufactured to order. Audience-perceived realities are manipulated to appear as objective realities. Media technicians cannot, however, develop credible illusions and fantasies accidentally. They must know what they are doing. They also must disguise from audiences what they are doing or that they are doing anything beyond the superficially obvious. Audiences are never permitted backstage. Illusions are easily destroyed and media illusions are worth a great deal of money. You know, Jack Wesley Lull said in Propaganda, the Formation of Men's Attitudes, propaganda must be continuous and lasting, continuous in that it must not leave any gaps, but must fill the citizen's whole day and all his days, lasting in that it must function over a very long period of time. Propaganda tends to make the individual live in a separate world. He must not have outside points of reference. He must not be allowed to have a moment of meditation or reflection in which to see himself vis-a-vis the propagandist, as happens when the propaganda is not continuous. At the moment, the individual emerges from the grip of propaganda. Instead, successful propaganda will occupy every moment of the individual's life through posters and loudspeakers. When he is out walking, through radio and newspapers, at home, through meetings and movies in the evening, the individual must not be allowed to recover, to collect himself, to remain untouched by propaganda during any relatively long period, for propaganda is not the touch of the magic wand. It is based on slow, constant impregnation. A couple of pages over, he says, To be effective, propaganda must constantly short-circuit all thought and decision. It must operate on the individual at the level of the unconscious. He must not know that he is being shaped by outside forces, but some central core in him must be reached in order to release the mechanism in the unconscious which will provide the appropriate and expected action. Before I go, one of my best friends in the world started a small business venture right when COVID hit, and as if it's not hard enough anyway for a small business to compete with the big guys and to fight all the regulations and the licensing fees and this, that, and the other, under a regular time, During COVID, it's nearly impossible, and he was telling me all the hoops he has to jump through with the FDA and how they keep changing things, and it sounds like a real nightmare. And he's not a sponsor. He's just a dear friend I've known over 25 years, and I've been using his product, Higher Perspectives CBD Oil. So if you guys are into that, please give him some love. His website is higherperspective.net. And he is a local company here, great guy, local author, and just an all-around great friend who's always supported me in my different ventures. He was a great friend to my band, always helped out any way he could, and always been supportive of me. So show this guy some love. I can trust him, and I know you can too. So on that note, I'm out of here. I hope you have a wonderful week. And as always, 
Cheers and blessings to you all. I mentioned earlier that you were a member of uh, Congress from 1977 until 1985 as a Republican. Right. Why did you switch? Well, it was out of the frustration that uh, government never got smaller. Uh, if you look at the Republican platform in 1980 under Ronald Reagan and the enthusiasm generated in 1980 that something would change, uh, it's awful disappointing to, to look three or four or five years later and find out that not only did things not get uh, smaller, they got much bigger faster. And, uh, and, and we can support this by looking at taxes. You know, they claim taxes went down under Ronald Reagan, but they were raised six times under Ronald Reagan as well. And the deficit exploded. The national debt went from less than a trillion to over three trillion dollars in that decade. Government debt is growing at 13.9% uh, per year. So it's awful frustrating to endorse the same old parties, Republican and Democrats, and never see significant change. Some would argue, well, Democrats at least stand up for civil liberties and they stand up for a foreign policy of less intervention overseas. But when you look at it, whether the Democrats, Democrats are in charge or Republicans are in charge, personal liberties are intruded upon. We go about the world uh, trying to uh, interfere in the internal affairs of all nations, and uh, we're, we're having e eternal conflicts. And it's unlike what our founders intended, unlike what the Constitution said, and unlike our American tradition of minding our own business and letting the people decide what is best for themselves and letting the market work for itself. We really don't have a free enterprise system here. Many libertarians are encouraged very much by what's happening in Eastern Europe, the total rejection of centralized planning. Yet today we read in the newspaper our Secretary of Agriculture deciding how many acres of corn should be planted next year. It's absurd. I mean, in America they're deciding on how many acres of corn to be planted, where in the Soviet Union they reject central planning. The noise in the background as they uh, prepare for the They must have really liked my statement, huh? What did you find when you were on the campaign trail? I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't. What did you find when you were on the campaign trail in 1987 and 88? Well, I found good receptions when people heard me. The trouble was that uh, there's sort of a monolithic uh, understanding that uh, there, there's something sacred about a so-called two-party system. Although the two-party system to us is a one-party system, there's never any real chance for the alternatives to get a chance uh, to speak out and to participate. We believe that any candidate who gets on enough ballots where they theoretically could win the presidency ought to be included in all the debates and all the coverage. But here in America, where there's supposed to be free choice, there's less choice. If, if Americans ever come to the conclusion that there's not much difference between Republican and Democrats, and they never include alternative choices in the coverage, the Americans really are, aren't exposed to a true choice. So we really have to fight. When we got our message out, the few times I did get on TV, the response was very, very favorable. I mean, we're very confident that the message of liberty is what the Americans want to hear. And besides, our country's getting poorer. They're going to have to listen to us soon. Just like in the Soviet Union, they had to listen to the non-communists because the communists consumed everything. Well, in this country, the interventionists, the big spenders, the deficit financing is going to finally consume what we have, and they're going to have to listen to the libertarian message. And I think times are more appropriate than ever. I think 1992 is a great year for libertarians. Uh, not only because it's a great message, but because the Republicans and the Democrats have messed this country up so badly.